do you check expiration dates? Some people are OCD about expiration dates. Some people just don't care, i.e. Frank Peavy. But, <laughs> but I found myself checking expiration dates quite a bit lately and a lot of different things. I was about to eat a cup of yogurt the other day and I checked the expiration date. I found some old contacts, wanted to wear those and save some money, checked the expiration date. Taking some multivitamins, checked the expiration date. I mean, it seems like everywhere I turn, there's an expiration date because I want to I wanna use stuff that's not expired, that is uh, still good to go. Well, did you know that God never intended us to live on yesterday's spiritual experience? God wants us to experience a fresh work of God. That's why in Ephesians 5.18, when we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit, the, the tense of the verb there is a present tense verb, which means you are to continually, every day, be filled with the Spirit. And so we need to understand that every day, we as individuals, we as a church, should seek a fresh movement of God in our lives. And we're going to see this idea reinforced in the early church. As a matter of fact, I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2 as we continue our study. We're just walking through Acts, line by line, verse by verse. And we are in Acts chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. The title of my sermon today is Pentecostal Power. Pentecostal Power. And I want to ask you today if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy living word. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly... There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might see our need for a fresh movement of the Spirit of God in our lives and in our church. Help us to understand this passage, to divide it correctly, and then give us the grace to apply this passage, these truths to our life. And we'll thank you, Lord, for that grace. Would you cause your hand to rest upon us. May the Spirit of God working in our midst point our hearts to Jesus and only Jesus. Lord, establish my steps in your word and we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, thank you. You can be seated. We see a little bit of information as to the context in verse 1 when it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now, just a quick review of chapter 1. In chapter 1, Luke records that Jesus gave his 
uh, disciples some last instructions after his resurrection and before he ascended back to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. And his instructions were that they were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And he told them that before you bear witness to me, you need to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. Wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you can't do what I'm calling you to do in your own strength. You need the power of the Spirit to accomplish what I'm calling you to accomplish. And so the disciples, after Jesus ascends, go back to Jerusalem. And for about ten days before the day of Pentecost, they are gathered in a room and they are praying, waiting for the Spirit to fall on their lives. And in chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, that's when this occasion occurs. That's when it happens. And it's, it's really significant to see all that transpires on this day of Pentecost. Now, just a little bit of background information about the day of Pentecost, because the, the setting here is important and, and, and interesting. Pentecost was the second of three annual feasts that the nation of Israel uh, celebrated. There was the Passover feast, there was the Feast of First Fruits or Weeks, which is called Pentecost, and there's the Feast of Booths. The Feast of First Fruits, or the Feast of Pentecost, celebrated the beginning of the harvest. The Feast of Booths celebrated the end of the harvest, and of course, the Passover Feast celebrated God's deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage and slavery. They said, why is the title... Feast of Weeks, why is it called Pentecost here in the book of Acts? Well, the, the word Pentecost is Greek. It refers to the seven-week or 50-day period between Passover and this feast. So those 50 days were just kind of summarized as calling them Pentecost. And we see a lot of information about this feast in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, in Leviticus chapter 23, we see a, a lot of information about what was to happen during this Feast of Pentecost or Feast of Weeks. First of all, it was a time of gratitude. There was gratitude for God's provision. They would, they would make loaves of bread from the new grain that they'd harvested, the first fruits of their harvest, and they would wave that bread before the Lord as if to say, Lord, thank you for the harvest. Thank you for providing for your people. It was similar to our Thanksgiving Day. On Thanksgiving, we get together and we have an abundance of food and we celebrate God's goodness, God's provision for us. But also there was gratitude for atonement for sin. On this day of Pentecost, there was to be a burnt offering of a bull, two rams and seven male lambs a year old. And also there's a sin offering of one male goat to make atonement for their sins. And so there are these animal sacrifices happening to remind them that they were sinners in need of a savior. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And all of these sacrifices pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus dying on the cross. But the people were gathered and 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 enacting these animal sacrifices to remind themselves that they needed atonement for their sin. But also this day was, a, was gratitude for God's blessings. There was opportunity for each person gathered in Jerusalem to offer a free will offering, whatever they wanted to offer, in accordance with the manner that God had blessed them. A.C. Myers writes, Pentecost was a time of rejoicing, a time to celebrate and recognize the manifold blessings of Yahweh that, that he had bestowed upon his chosen people. Now, here's another important aspect of Pentecost. It was a crowded time. Not only was it a grateful time, it was a crowded time. Pentecost was one of three times during the year that all the males, all the Jewish males were required to appear before the Lord at the temple in Jerusalem. We're going to read 
little bit later in our passage that there were people there from many different nations, Jews who lived in different nations that came to Jerusalem for that feast. And so Jerusalem was full of people during the Feast of Pentecost. It would have been filled to overflowing with Jews that lived outside of the Promised Land that came to Jerusalem for that feast. So the setting, now listen, the setting is one of gratitude, celebration, religious services, and overflowing crowds. That sounds like just the recipe for God to show up, right? Gratitude, celebration, religious services, and overflowing crowds. In other words, there were a lot of people and they were thinking about God. That's the setting of the day of Pentecost. And that's when God decides to fulfill his promise of the baptism of the Spirit. Now, we studied a couple of weeks ago what the baptism of the Spirit entails. Wayne Grudem writes, The baptism of the Spirit is a phrase the New Testament authors use to speak of coming into the new covenant power of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit is the experience that believers have with the Holy Spirit of God on this side of the cross. Now, the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament, in Old Testament believers' life, But their experience with the Spirit was different than our experience with the Spirit. And there's a lot of debate over what the differences are. We don't have time to get into that this morning. But there is a difference. And the baptism of the Spirit speaks of all the different things the Spirit of God does in our life on this side of the cross. That's what the baptism of the Spirit refers to. And here, these disciples experience the baptism of the Spirit. This was a major transition, I believe, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That's why there were these special signs to indicate this was a major transition in the way that believers experience the Spirit of God. Now what I want to do is I want to just kind of walk through this first part of Acts chapter 2, and I want to just point out, I'm going to kind of be your tour guide, I want to point out five extraordinary aspects of this event. Five extraordinary aspects of this event. And we're going to make some application to all of us in this room. First of all, notice what they hear. Notice what they hear. It says in Acts 2 verse 1, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound. Everybody say sound. A sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it, the sound, filled the entire house where they were Sitting, So they're in this upper room together. They've been praying for 10 days. They're waiting for the promise of the Father. And all of a sudden, as they pray, they hear the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Do you think that got their attention? I mean, they're looking around and, and they're hearing this, this, this powerful sound. I don't know if you've ever been in a, a, a windstorm. I mean, a real windstorm. Now, I grew up in Florida and we dealt with hurricanes down in Florida. I remember that one time a hurricane was making landfall close to where I grew up and we weren't in any immediate danger. The, the, the brunt of it was not hitting us, but we were getting sort of the, the, the fringes of the hurricane. And I remember walking outside as, as just a young boy. And I remember the wind blowing. I could lean forward and the wind would keep me from, from falling over. I mean, it was a strong, strong wind with a loud, loud sound that filled up your, your ears. And that's what they're experiencing here. They're experiencing this loud, this loud, mighty wind rushing throughout. So the disciples and others, if you look in your notes, hear the sound of a powerful wind. Now you say, what's significant about hearing wind? 
I mean, what, what's the big deal? Well, in the Bible, the work of the Holy Spirit is often characterized as wind, which speaks of the Spirit of God's power and authority. Ezekiel 37, the famous passage called the Valley of the Dry Bones. The Lord comes to the prophet Ezekiel and shows him this vision of, of dead, dry bones in a valley And he's showing him how he's going to do a mighty work in Israel to revive them and use them once again. And to show him this, he says, hey, Ezekiel, preach to the bones. Now that would be unusual, right? Some preachers might say they've had that experience before in their local church, but not here, not here, not here. He said, said, preach to the bones. He began to preach to the bones, and God began to put the bones back together, and the skeletons stood up, and they they were together. The structure was there, but they weren't alive. And so God said, breathe, O man of God, breathe on these bones, and the breath signified the Spirit of God making people alive, reviving them. And so as he, as he breathed on these bones, the Spirit of God made these skeletal structures alive. And God was showing him, listen, this is how revival happens, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. But the Spirit of God is, is, is pictured as breath, as wind in Ezekiel chapter 37. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 3 when he's speaking to Nicodemus about the need to be born again. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So he compares the work of the Spirit to to wind. You can't can't wrap your, your mind around the wind. You don't know where it's coming from, where it's going. There's a mystery there. But he's saying that just like wind blows with power, the Holy Spirit moves with power by making people brand new. And so in the scriptures we see this this comparison of the Holy Spirit with wind. As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew language which the Old Testament was written in, and in the Greek language which the New Testament was written in, the word for spirit and wind are the exact same word. In the Old Testament the word is ruach, which can be translated spirit, it can be translated breath, it can be translated wind. In the New Testament, the word is pneuma, which can be translated spirit. It can be translated breath. It can be translated wind. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. The Holy Spirit is often characterized as wind to speak of the Holy Spirit's power and authority. And so they hear this wind to remind them of the the power of the Spirit that is about to do something magnificent in their lives. But secondly, I want you to notice what they see. They hear wind, but what do they see? Look what it says in uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 3. It says there, And divided tongues as of fire, tongues of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So what did that look like? I don't have a clue. And, And the best that it could be described was some sort of emblem of fire, a tongue of fire over each individual's, Head. So what do they see? The disciples see fire resting on each person. Fire, visible fire, resting on uh, above each person's head. And they say, wait, what's significant about fire? Well, fire is a symbol of God's presence throughout the Bible. When God wanted to appear, 
to Moses and say, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. How did he appear? As a burning bush, a bush that was on fire and yet not consumed. And as Moses approaches that bush, the Lord says, Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. You're in my presence. And that fire pictured the, the very presence of God. And all throughout the book of Exodus and in, in, in other places, book of Malachi, we see God's presence symbolized as fire. Fire representing his presence with his people. So wait, why are there these tongues of fire on each person? Well, God here shows them that the gift of the Spirit is given to all Christ's followers. Notice it says there in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all, everyone say all, all together in one place. Look in verse 3. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So I believe that each one correlates with the word all. Then look in verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now I don't believe that that all and each one and all are referring to different groups of people. I don't believe that they were all gathered in a house and just some of them had fire resting upon their head. I believe that everyone in that room, because there's no exegetical way to believe otherwise, that all the people in that room experienced the tongue of fire above their head. And what God is showing them is this. The work of the Spirit is not just for the disciples, not just for the, the apostles, But everyone gathered in that room were recipients of the power of the Spirit on their life. God is showing them, listen, God is showing them that the gift of the Holy Spirit is given to all Christ's followers. And if you don't believe that, Paul leaves no doubt in Romans chapter 8 when he says, if you have the Spirit of Christ, you have the Spirit of God living in you. Spirit of God dwells in you, he says. If you Listen, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, at the moment you were saved, the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit came to take up residence in your life. And if you are born again, if you are redeemed, if you are saved, you have the Holy Spirit. It's not just for preachers or, or missionaries. The gift of the Holy Spirit is for every follower of Christ. And these tongues of fire above each head what, what was, was, was pointing the disciples to this reality. So what did they hear? They heard wind. What did they see? They saw tongues of fire. David Peterson writes, The Pentecostal gift, uh, this, this day of Pentecost, is God's empowering presence with his people in a new and distinctive way. Revealing his will and leading them to f- fulfill his purposes for them as the people of the new covenant. And so they hear wind. And what do they see? What do they see? Fire. But third, I want you to notice what they experience. They hear some things, they see some things, but then they experience something significant. Look what it says in verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. On that day of Pentecost, they experienced the filling of the Spirit of God. They each, every one of them, are filled with the Spirit. Again, it uses the word all. They were all filled with the Spirit. And so, every one of these believers, these Christ followers, gathered into this room, praying for ten days, hears wind, 
ceased fire above each head, and every one of them experienced the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now here's the question, what is the filling of the Spirit? What, what is meant by that New Testament phrase? We're going to see it again in Acts. And over in Ephesians, there's a command to be filled with the Spirit. Well, here's a good definition. This is in your notes. The filling of the Spirit is the empowering of the Spirit for the Christian life that occurs when you yield control of your life to God. Filling of the Spirit is the the empowering of the Spirit for the Christian life that occurs when you yield control of your life to God. Well, how do you know that? Well, over in Ephesians 5.18, we see some clues as to what the filling of the Spirit is all about. In that verse, Paul writes, Do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. There's a contrast there. And the contrast is this. Don't let wine control you. Rather, let the Spirit of God control. You know when you, when you have uh, substances in your body, they begin to control your actions, your thoughts, your speech, everything. They, they, they lower your inhibitions. And, and, and Paul's saying, don't let anything control you other than the Spirit. And so the filling of the Spirit speaks to the control of the Spirit. It means that you are yielded to Him, surrendered to Him, and He is filling up your life. He's directing you. He's empowering you. He's guiding you. He's encouraging you. He's helping you. He's comforting you. The Holy Spirit has that primary role of of God and comforter in your life. When you're you're yielded to Him and, and you're full of the Spirit, there will be, listen, there will be a touch of the supernatural on your life. You can't imagine the ways that God will use you if you're filled with the Spirit. But if you're just filled up with yourself, you can expect mundane, frustrated, defeated living. And so that's what the filling of the Spirit is. It's this power of the Spirit that occurs when you yield control of your life to God. Paul ends, writes this. Listen, the indwelling Spirit of God, everyone's indwelt by the Spirit as a Christian, but not, not everyone's filled. It's a command. We have to obey. The indwelling Spirit of God is the one who should continually, everyone say, continually, continually control and dominate the life of the believer. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God should continually, every day, again, we don't live off yesterday's spiritual experience, every day, you need the Spirit of God to control and dominate your life. And here in Acts chapter 2, they experience that. God just fills them up with the Spirit on this day. That's what they experience. And here's what's cool. That experience that they experience on the day of Pentecost is available to everyone in this room. If you'll just surrender all. Everyone in this room can experience the filling of the Spirit if you know Christ and you are surrendered to Him. Right? Now that's remarkable, isn't it? Not? I mean, that, that's amazing. That that's a reality for all of us. Why do we live so powerless when the power of the Spirit of God is available? There's a fourth aspect of this story I want you to notice. I want you to notice what they do. What do they do? They hear wind, they see fire, they experience the the, the filling of the Spirit, but what do they do? Look what it says in verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues 
as the Spirit gave them utterance. What do they do? They begin to speak about the Lord. The word utterance there in the Greek language means to speak one's opinion plainly or to, or to speak with emphasis. You say, wait, what were they talking about? Was this an intelligible language or was it just kind of this spiritual language that no one could understand? Well, they were talking about something specific. Look what it says in verse 11. Acts chapter 2, verse 11. The people hearing them speak say this. Jews, proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues what? The mighty works of God. So when they were filled with the Spirit, they began to talk about, to proclaim the mighty works of God. They began to talk about the God of the Bible. And, I, and, and his redemptive plan, what he was doing to move in human history to save a lost and dying humanity. So when they were filled with the Spirit, they began to talk about God. I don't want to go to meddling here because I love it just like everyone else does. But when you're filled with the Spirit, the first... The first thing you talk about is not football. Or the weather. Or whatever. Fill in the blank. When you're filled with the Spirit, you know what you talk about? You talk about the Lord. When's the last time you had just a good conversation with a brother or sister in Christ about Him? You see there in your notes, the bold proclamation of truth is a characteristic of the Spirit-filled life. Over in Acts 4, it says they were filled with the Spirit, they went out talking about the Lord. They, they went preaching the gospel when they were filled with the Spirit. One of the ways you can know if you're filled with the Spirit is this, what comes out of your mouth? Do you talk about the Lord? The bold proclamation of truth is a characteristic of the Spirit-filled life. So they're filled with the Spirit, and what do they do? They begin to talk about the mighty works of God. We can learn from that, can't we? Direct correlation there. Direct correlation. But I want to show you a final thing here. Because I know you have a lot of questions that still need to be answered. What happens next? Notice what happens. We've talked about what they heard and what they saw and what they experienced and what they did. But what happens next as they're filled with the Spirit and begin to speak about the mighty works of God? Well, two things. First of all, a crowd gathers as a result of the supernatural phenomenon. A crowd gathers as a result of the supernatural phenomenon. Look what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews... Devout men from every nation under heaven. They were there because of the feast. So Jerusalem was full of folks. And they're there under heaven, every nation in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the multitude came together. They heard the wind. They heard the disciples proclaiming the mighty works of God. 
in different languages. It says in other tongues, not just in Hebrew or Aramaic. They were using other languages to communicate the gospel. And it says they, they came together. They came together. In other words, this manifestation of the power of God got folks' attention. And a crowd gathers as a result of the supernatural phenomenon. Now listen to me. This is going to help you. Why do we see God performing signs and wonders in the New Testament? And why does God still move like that today in some places? Listen, God moves with supernatural signs and wonders always to get people's attention. Not to cause them to fall in love with the sign and the wonder. God wants to get their attention so they can hear the truth about Him. And they can fall in love with Him. Remember over in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 folks with how many loaves of bread? How many? Not a trick question. How many? Five. And how many fish? Two. He feeds over 5,000 people on that day. Miraculous movement of God. And then people begin to follow him around and say, do it again. Give us more bread. And they fell in love with the miracle. And Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I did that to show you, you need me. And when he taught them that, you know what? Multitudes turned around and went home. Said, we just wanted more miracles. We didn't sign up for all this following Jesus business. And Jesus turned to his disciples. He said, you don't want to go away also, do you? And Peter said, Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. You see, God works with signs and wonders to get people's attention so they can respond to the truth of the word of God. And so he gathers them with this supernatural phenomenon, mighty rushing wind, speaking the gospel in other languages. They gather together. But also, let me show you what happens. People here experience the blessing of hearing the gospel in their heart language. They experience the blessing of hearing the gospel in their heart language. Verse 4 says, they begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Wait, what were these other tongues all about? Well, look what it says in verse 6. At this sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because, why were they bewildered? Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So the the other tongues of verse 4 speaks of the other languages of the people gathered from other nations. You say, wait, what nations were represented there? What what languages were they hearing the gospel in? Well, there are at least 15. Look what it says in verse 7. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. Wow. All these folks gathered were hearing the disciples, the followers of Christ in the upper room speak about the mighty works of God in their heart language. How do you explain that? A miracle. These fishermen didn't suddenly learn Phrygian and all these different languages. God miraculously empowered them to speak of the mighty works of God in the people's heart language. And look what it says in verse 7. They were amazed and astonished. Can I tell you this? 
I got some good friends right now that are living in Central Asia. And they've gone to be witnesses to Christ in the midst of unreached people. And before they start the work, you know what they do? They move to a city which they won't even live in in the future. They move to a city just to learn the language. Because there's something that happens when people hear the good news in their own heart language. There's a connection there. I got some other good friends that are training right now to go to, to South Asia. And after they get to their training and they, and they, they fly overseas, they're going, to spend, uh, they're going to spend some time in another city just learning the language. Why? So they can share the gospel in their people's heart language because there's a connection there when that happens. So what happens? A crowd gathers as a result of the supernatural phenomenon. People experience the blessing of hearing the gospel in their heart language. They're amazed. They're hearing the mighty works of God and they understand it. That's what happens. I've had the privilege of going to India twice. And when you're in India and you, and you share in a church, it's, it's very customary for for people to line up to speak to you after the service. They, they, they say, well, this person represents the Lord, so we want to go and, and have them pray for us. So after a service in India, it's, it's very customary that, that, that those that are visiting the church will stand at the front of the church and just receive people for just as long as it takes. And, and I was absolutely amazed that as I talked to believer after believer after believer in Jesus Christ from a Hindu background, almost every one of them came to Christ as a result of either personal healing or seeing a family member or friend healed. You say, well, I don't have a category for that, but that's okay. God doesn't need our categories. He's God, right? And what God's doing among the Hindu people in India is this. In, that, in, that, in the, the darkness of that pagan worship, the spiritual confusion of, of having millions of gods that you, that you try to appease, in the midst of all that, God is healing folks miraculously to get their attention. And then when he has their attention, you know what? They hear the gospel. And they give their lives to Jesus. And... And I think about that. It's exactly what's happening here in Acts chapter 2. God gets their attention. They hear the gospel in their heart language. And that's how God is moving all over the world. All over the world. And so that's what happens on the day of Pentecost. Now let me just close by saying this. Wait, what's the point? How does this apply to our church? I mean, you're talking about fire and wind and healing. And, I mean, what, what's it got to do for, what's it have to do with us? Well, here it is. We should desire and seek a fresh filling of the Spirit so that we can effectively share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should desire and seek a fresh feeling, filling of the Holy Spirit so we can effectively share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to me. There's no indication in Scripture that wind, audible wind, and visible fire is a repeated experience or one that we should expect. Nowhere are we told in Scripture, hey, look for more fire and listen for more wind. I believe this was a major transition point 
between the old covenant and new covenant experience of the Spirit. So God accompanies this transition with wind and fire to get their attention, saying this is something major. But never in Scripture are we told as a local body of believers to, hey, pray for more wind, look for more fire. That's never taught in the other pages of Scripture. But we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit every day. So what they're experiencing here, the filling of the Spirit, is something that we can live out on a day-by-day basis. In other words, if we read this story and all we walk away with is a desire for signs and wonders, we miss the point. The point of Pentecost was not signs and wonders. It was not fire and wind and tongues. The point of Pentecost was God's people were filled with the Spirit and they got, about, they got busy about the work of God. That's the point of Pentecost. So we may not have wind and fire in our midst, but we can be filled with the Spirit today and live with the same kind of power the early church experienced, right? And if you don't get that, you're missing the point. Filling of the Spirit is available to us all. You say, wait, why should we be filled with the Spirit So we can say we're a spiritual church or we got it all together or we got things happening in our church no one else is doing. We're alive, you know. No. There's an old hymn that uh, I sang in my church growing up. Maybe you sang it too. It's called Pentecostal Power. And the chorus goes something like this. Lord, send the old time power. That Pentecostal power. Thy floodgates of blessing. On us, throw open wide. Lord, send the old time power, the the Pentecostal power. Listen. That sinners be converted and your name glorified. Wait, why should we seek a fresh work of God? Why should we seek the filling of the Spirit? That sinners be converted and his name glorified. That's what it's all about.